they are families here that have lost housing and they're working to provide for their children and for themselves. They're working to keep their kids safe and people just aren't understanding it. Right now it's a hard time for everyone. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. Vermont is experiencing an unprecedented housing crisis. Vermont has among the lowest rental vacancy rates in the country and among the highest rates of homelessness. State lawmakers are currently wrestling over the fate of the pandemic-era emergency hotel housing program, which could end as soon as June now that federal funds for it have run out. Several thousand people would be pushed out of the hotels at that time unless state lawmakers agree to continue funding the program. Today on the Vermont Conversation, we hear voices of the housing crisis. We'll hear first from housing advocate and former gubernatorial candidate Brenda Siegel. Next, I visited the Hilltop Inn in Berlin, Vermont, one of the emergency hotels, to speak with a couple who are currently living there and fear being pushed out. Finally, I speak with Middlebury College professor Gary Winslet, who has written about some of the causes of Vermont's housing crunch. His interest in the issue has been inspired in part by his own struggles to afford purchasing a house here. I began my conversation with Brenda Siegel. She has been traveling the state to meet with people living in emergency housing in the hotels. I asked her to give an overview of the situation in the hotels. Right now, there are 1,800 households who are utilizing the motel program across the state. That's 2,800 individuals, and that includes 500 to 600 children. And in, on June 1st, about 700 uh, who are at risk of being exited if nothing changes in the state budget. And on July 1st, the rest of the population. So that will be the entire population utilizing the motel program, so nearly 3,000 people. You have been really the face of activism around this issue. Why? Why is this something you've just thrown yourself into? Well, first of all, I have cared about this issue really to my core since I was a very little kid. My father tells stories of me keeping him up at night to talk about how wrong it is that people are experiencing homelessness and that was when I was four years old as young as he remembers but also you know I uh, became I personally started experiencing poverty as an adult and what I see is that the people in this program are me without a family to stay with when they've lost their housing they are me without a voucher at exactly the right moment when they could find an apartment um, and I am not, and other people in poverty or other people who are in different situations are not better or smarter or figured something out that people in these motels have not figured out. They are all of us with a little less privilege, and in some cases a lot less privilege. What have you seen as you have been traveling the state, going to these motels, um, where people have been living throughout the pandemic. What do you come away from these, and what do you want people to know about what is going on in these motels? Well, I have been to 16 of the hotels uh, and uh, done workshops with the people, with the guests here at, at many of them. Um, I have talked to about 1,000 guests. I have seen well over 100, roughly 200 people write emails to their legislators, or if they did not have a device of their own, they hand wrote letters, which were then transcribed and sent. And what I've seen here uh, at all of these motels is that there is community, that people are taking care of each other, that uh, there is an incredible amount of people who will really struggle to survive on the street. I've seen people with oxygen tanks. I've seen people wearing uh, defibrillators, so they have to be near an outlet all the time. I've seen uh, many, many, many children. Uh, I have heard the stories of people uh, far more than I thought would be uh, who have bipolar and are finally stable from their bipolar and know that they cannot keep that stability on the on the street and they don't qualify for SSI or SSDI. 
I have seen many people in recovery, which of course is um, something that really touches my heart, having lost two family members to overdose, and I know how a loss of stable housing can create a relapse. Uh, those folks will be exited on June 1st. What is an alternative scenario that, uh, and I won't call it a solution, but what's another path that you're urging state leaders to take? So the hotel owners have agreed to negotiate their price, which means that right now there's $26 million or $25.8 million in the budget for this program, for the motel program. If we were to put $24 million more, we could keep people, everyone in the program, or 1,800 households on any given night um, in the motels through March of 2024. And that would give all of us, shelter providers, people on the ground, advocates, uh, the administration, everybody time to come together and really start to make a concrete transition plan out of this program that doesn't leave shelter providers, others, and, and municipalities to deal with the fallout. I mean, what's going to happen right now is we're going to have a catastrophic fallout that's going to be an impact that is a humanitarian crisis. And we're expecting our small communities who do not have the resources to pick up all these pieces. And not only does that increase healthcare costs extremely, because people go to the emergency room um, an average of, I believe, two times, uh, no, three to four times a month when they're on the street, which is extremely expensive, um, but also public safety impacts. And um, something that I learned recently from the Washington County State's Attorney is that uh, people experiencing homelessness are, I believe, two to three times more likely to be victims of a crime. Mm -hmm. So we're also talking about um, putting people in at risk of uh, being in unsafe situations as well. Let me get you to respond to what the governor and others are saying, which is that this program costs roughly $8 million a month to keep these hotels running. This is not a solution. This is a stopgap. Uh, and this money would be better spent on permanent solutions like housing. We, are at, we have the second highest rate of homelessness in the country. And for us to respond to that by unsheltering uh, the entire... 80% of the people experiencing homelessness, because that's who is in motel programs, 80% of the people experiencing homelessness, that is um, just an incredibly inhumane response to a problem that is certainly caused by the state and not by these indiv individuals. You've put yourself at the center of uh, an incredibly painful situation. So many vulnerable people are in the motels where you're visiting um, your own experience with this. What keeps you able to keep doing this work? You have been such a tenacious fighter on this issue, um, and it is often thankless, literally. Uh, you're a thorn in the side to legislators who just wish this would go away, and you won't let it. Um, what keeps you going? Yeah, uh, it's... I, I can say with assurance that it is not pleasant. It's often not pleasant for me. Um, but some I know what it's like to be, to feel like there's no one's there to fight for me um, when I am in my lowest moment. And there, we need to be a society that stands by uh, our members. I don't know how to stop, so I don't know how to say what keeps me going. I would so much rather be someone that did absolutely everything I could for the people who are struggling the most than someone who turned my back, and that's what keeps me going. That was Brenda Siegel, a housing advocate and former gubernatorial candidate. Next, I visited the Hilltop Inn in Berlin, Vermont, where numerous residents have been living in emergency housing that may soon end. I met in the hotel dining room with Brittany Plukas, who is 29 and grew up in Holland, Vermont, and her partner, Michael Grout, who is 35 and grew up in Waterbury. Both of them work several jobs. 
I began by asking Brittany to explain how she ended up living in the hilltop. Um, I moved to Barrie three years ago to be with Michael. And we were living in a friend's house where on April 14th, 15th, April 15th, she kicked us out unexpectedly with four hours of notice on a Friday night. Um, we called 211. We got into the hilltop in that night. This is uh, April when? April 15th, 2023. That night, we were pretty met, pretty um, upset. I was, at least. But the staff here did incredible trying to make me feel comfortable and safe. Um, Tell me about the living situation that you were in previous to this. It was very unstable, very... Um, just unstable, unhealthy, crazy, <laughs> dramatic. Was it your own apartment or you were sharing a place? I was, we were, um, I was living with Michael and one of our friends in her apartment. How long were you there? Three years. Were you looking for a place to stay while you were living there? Yes, and I was... Um, I applied for housing. I was denied housing a couple times. What do you mean, denied housing? Um, they told me there was no housing for me. Um, there was no available housing for, for me. And who's they that were telling you this? Um, I applied to, um, I forgot the name. Well, Highgate, I applied to Highgate Housing. They said there was a two-year waiting list. And I found out there was a six-year waiting list, and then I found out there was a 20-year waiting list, and then they have a sister housing unit somewhere. I don't remember the name. Um, up the road, I applied there. I was told there was no housing for me there either. And this is all in the central Vermont area, generally, in and around Barrie? Yes. Um, Michael, tell me a little bit about your experience and where you've been living and your uh, efforts to find permanent housing. Um, I've been kind of a nomad most of my life. I just moved around after I got out of the foster care system. I always got jobs but couldn't ever make enough money to be able to afford a place on my own, so I'd end up just moving from place to place throughout the years. And where have those places been generally? All over. I've been from here down to Louisiana, back up to New Hampshire, back to Vermont. So, uh, Brittany, I want to go back to, um, have you been working all the time that you've been looking for housing? Yes. Tell me about your jobs. Um, I've worked in McDonald's restaurant, uh, Burger King. I'm currently working in Pizza Hut. I currently work at the Hilltop Inn. I've worked at Walmart, Big Lots. I did nursing for nine years prior to all this. Um, I worked straight out of high school. So for people listening to this who are hearing that you're working, and why can't you find housing? I think it's really helpful for people to understand what you've encountered when you've looked. There's just no housing anywhere for anyone. There's just no more. Um, we don't make enough to support rent. <laughs> and bills and everything else. When you look for housing, you know, what is a number that when you look at it, you feel like, you, okay, you could handle that, you know, as a rent. Well, depends. If you're including utilities, you could probably do up to fifteen, eighteen hundred. With no utilities included, most people probably wouldn't be able to pay more than a thousand a month. But you feel like you could handle that if you could find it. And, and what are you finding? What, what's typical when you look now? Around two grand. 
1800 or higher and that's no utilities included and how big of a place is that usually about a two-bedroom if you're lucky sometimes it's a one-bedroom now sometimes it's a studio yeah michael uh tell me a little bit about where you've worked in this time I've worked for a lot of mountains, ski resorts, doing lift-offs in the winter. Um, when I wasn't doing that in the winter, I've been working for grocery stores, usually stocking shelves. I've done janitorial, worked at a lot of fast food places. What's been your experience in trying to find permanent housing? Um, I have a problem because I have disabilities, a lot of physical and some mental illness. And my body is not holding up and I don't always have the patience to hold a job. Sometimes I get mad and I end up getting fired or I end up walking out of the place. And a lot of the housing is just too expensive. The pay is too low. Minimum wage is really low and working full-time with the cost of rent the cost of utilities the cost of food it's just not manageable we can barely keep the car on the road Brittany you mm. said don't don't get me started talking about the car the car is pretty essential to your livelihood and existence what's been the your experience with the car oh. um we just got rid of our Buick um, that we had for the last three years. Um, we just recently got a new a new to us car. We just found out that it needs a whole new exhaust system from the catalytic catalytic converter back, ball joints, oil change. Um, we're pretty sure there's a gasket somewhere leaking gas. So. <sighs> Have you ever ended up spending the night in your car? Yes, I did once, but that was not recently. That was by choice to help a friend out. Tell me about a typical week for you. Um, you are now working two jobs. How does that work? Um, I wake up at 7.30 in the morning to get ready for my 8 a.m. shift at the inn. I work till 3 o'clock there, and then I work from 3 to 10 at a Pizza Hut, sometimes 3 to 11 at Pizza Hut. And then that is, I work at the inn six days a week, and I'm cutting down to three days a week at Pizza Hut because I'm scheduled for five days a week there. So there's, you're working about 16 hours a day. Yes. Michael, what about you? Mine's in the process of changing. Pizza hired me to train me for lower management shift lead. And I recently got the job here. <clears throat> I'm going to be doing front desk, uh, double shifts. Yeah, I don't get to sleep much. I have a hard time sleeping as it is. So I work 66 hours a week minimum probably more than that. I don't have much time to eat. Usually I have time to get out of work and get ready to go to work. Maybe sleep and eat a little bit in between. What does that do to your body? I mean, what, what, is, what do you feel physically? It's tearing me up pretty bad. Some days it's hard for me to walk. Um, some days I have nausea. I have problems with my stomach anyway, but it's messing with me in all kinds of ways. Mentally, physically, emotionally. I find myself much more easily annoyed. Trying to control that is fun. So, Brittany, you, um, th well, the two of you moved in here in mid-April. What is the Hilltop Inn, what has it been like for you living here? It's been fantastic living here. It's a little community we have here. We all help each other as much as we can. We all respect each other. Um, we're like a ginormous family. Are you able to stay here currently without charge? Um, yes, until the end of the month. June 1st um, we will be our last day. I'm sorry that this is so hard to talk about. 
what will you do after June 1st? Um, we will probably be in the car. Are you exploring what other options might be available? We have, we have filled out housing applications with Good Sam and Capstone. We are working with them to find housing as well. Anything promising coming from that? No, there is waiting lists for everything. Uh, they said up to 18 months. Have you ever been homeless before? No, this is my first time being homeless. What does that mean to you? It terrifies me. Um, I didn't think it was something that was possible because I've worked so hard in my life to try to provide for myself and make myself something. I've worked since I graduated high school. I've tried to keep a roof over my head for years and I failed. I feel like the state failed me too. The government failed. Um, but I'm not gonna, I'm not giving up. I'm still gonna try my best at making myself, my life better. What would help you the most right now? If the housing uh, grant was extended for just more time, more time so we could get things more stable. What would you say, Michael? What would help you the most? The same. <clears throat> Having grants extended, I haven't even gotten my first paycheck after three weeks of work. Um, still waiting, probably get paid this week and next week, or yeah, probably about five days after I'll get paid from here. But most of that's gonna be going right into the car to fix that so we can just keep getting to work. There's been a lot of discussion about the situation, the plight of people who are struggling to get housing right now and who are unhoused. Brittany, what do you want people to understand about the situation that you're in. These, you know, you're interacting with people every day at Pizza Hut. They don't know who it is that's helping them. What do you want them to understand? People don't understand that times are hard and there's not housing for people. And people are just judge the homeless. Um, but Everyone I've met in the program so far has been working so hard to provide for themselves and their families. And we try our hardest. We work our hardest. We're good, we're kind people. Everyone's kind and loving. And people just need to understand that there's a stigma about homeless people that's not true and people judge homeless people and it's not fair it's not right what do you think that stigma is people think homeless people don't work and it's not true they work so hard i've met so many people that are working just to keep food on the table and that's all they can do because the housing crisis is so bad. There are families here that have lost housing and they're working to provide for their children and for themselves. They're working to keep their kids safe. And it's, and people just aren't understanding it. Right now it's a hard time for everyone. What is this stress doing to your health? I um, I suffer from mental illness. Um, it has taken a huge toll on that. I don't sleep much anymore. I don't eat much anymore. I'm not around people anymore. I'm constantly depressed. 
the governor and m many politicians are just saying, you know, ending the emergency housing, people are just going to be able to find places to live. Michael, you're shaking your head. What? Why? There's a lot of people who are disabled and can't work. Uh, we're probably better off than some. There's people on fixed incomes that don't stand a chance at affording a lot of these more expensive places, and the waiting list for them is still like a year or more. They're having problems getting transportation to get their medication. COVID pretty much shut down the country. It took a toll on lots of us. What would kind of turn a light on at the end of this tunnel for you? Um, if I could potential, if I could stay in a stable housing until I could at least save up money and afford a place of my own. At this point, um, because with COVID and everything, I lost my nursing license because I wouldn't get vaccinated. Brittany, what keeps you going? What gives you hope? <sighs> Myself. <laughs> yeah, myself. That's about it. <laughs> myself and Michael. Michael, let me ask that same question to you. What, what keeps you going and gives you hope? I've been trying to figure that out myself for years. I've just always been a fighter. Never give up. Yep. Never surrender. That's what I go by, too. I want to thank both of you for sharing your story today. I know it's been a difficult story, and it takes a lot of courage to tell it. So thank you. No problem. No problem. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for speaking with us. That was Brittany Plukas and Michael Grout, who currently live in emergency housing in the Hilltop Inn in Berlin, Vermont. My next guest is Gary Winslet, an assistant professor of political science at Middlebury College. Winslet has been writing about the roots of Vermont's housing crisis on Substack. His interest in the topic is personal. He and his wife have been unable to afford a house here. I asked him to begin by talking about what brought him to Vermont and what he's encountered while looking for a house. Uh, so I got my PhD at Boston College, um, studying international political economy. Uh, and then in 2018, I got this great teaching position at Middlebury College. Uh, it was my dream job. And it, it's been that way ever since. It's just absolutely lovely. Um, and so we moved here. Um, we moved here in the in August of 2019. Um, with plans to take a year or two to finish up getting a down payment together for a house um, and then buy a house. Um, and then about the time we had had kind of a down payment together by 2021, prices in Vermont were skyrocketing. Um, and we would, you know, go to see a home and get completely outbid. Um, or there would be just tons and tons of offers in, you know, $50,000, $60,000 over asking price, even on top of the way that prices had gone way up um, and, you know, people waiving inspections, people paying in all cash. We just couldn't compete with that. Um, you know, I make a, a decent income at Middlebury College and my wife is a physician assistant in orthopedics. So, so we do fairly well. And so part of my motivation to start really digging into housing politics in Vermont was not purely selfish. I mean, it, it would help us if it was more affordable. But just reflecting on how if we were struggling to afford to buy a home here, what it must be like for people who make less than we do, um, and just really wanting to help out like everybody do well, um, and everybody can't do well amidst scarcity. So why do we have housing scarcity? And so that's sort of what launched a lot of my, my research into some of this um, and writing about Vermont housing politics. So you wrote a lengthy analysis of Vermont's housing crisis back in February on your Substack blog, the Libertarian Progressive Papers, and a few fun facts that I pulled from that um, that I think it would be useful for you know readers to be listeners to be oriented to. Uh, you wrote that uh, nationally, about four to eight percent is considered a healthy vacancy rate in a community or a city. In Chittenden County, the vacancy rate is 0.4%. Um, 
generally speaking, spending about 30% of one's income on your housing costs, rent or mortgage or what have you, is considered healthy and sustainable. Um, in Vermont, a quarter of Vermonters spend more than half of their income on rent, and another quarter spend between 30 and 50% on rent. Um, a few other uh, quick hits. The Burlington area is the sixth most expensive small metro area in the country. And uh, then Vermont ranks second in the country in homelessness as a percentage of the population. So Gary, kind of drill down to what are some of the drivers of the extreme housing conditions that have led to this homeless situation, among other problems? Well, we, we make it in Vermont very difficult to build housing at scale. Um, you know, we have things like Act 250, but we also have lo local zoning rules that make it very challenging for developers to build a bunch of housing at once, right? And that's how you a developer will bring down costs, right? In a lot of other places, what a developer might do is they buy land in a field somewhere, right? And you sort of build 50, 60 houses at one time. And you're able to save a lot of money because you can buy sort of all of your input costs at once, right? All of the brick, all of the lumber, all of the nails, everything. Um, and you're sort of also, because it's all at once, you're kind of able to save on, on labor um, and you're able to do things in a much more efficient manner. Uh, in Vermont, we have a whole bunch of rules that basically make it impossible to do that. So for example, in, in Act 250, if you're going to build, we have like the, the 1055 rule. So if you're going to build more than 10 units of housing in within a five mile radius, within five years, you have to go through this whole extra process, right? That puts a lot of scrutiny and stretches out that timeline. So by making it more difficult for developers to build housing at scale in good quantity, that constrains the supply. Well, if you've got constrained supply and you, you're, you have increased demand, because, you know, people like Vermont, it's a lovely place. Uh, more people can work from home than they used to. Uh, there's climate change. There's a lot of reasons why demand for Vermont housing has gone up because it's, it's a lovely place. But if you have increasing demand and you have extraordinary supply constraints, you're going to get a rise in prices, right? Um, and so that that's what has led to the sort of unusually high cost of housing in Vermont. I think for a long time, people, you know, heard developers griping about Act 250. This is all kind of baked in, you know, living in Vermont, but it's always sort of happened to someone else. It's been someone else's problem. It's been a developer's problem. Um, I'm not a developer, so it doesn't affect me, that kind of thing. What has happened to where this is now everybody's problem? Well, because it has all kinds of knock-on effects. Um, you know, Vermont is dead last in the country in keeping college students uh, after they graduate. That's not good for our local communities that we keep losing young people. Um, you know, businesses have tough time have a tough time hiring people because they can't find workers. You know, where, where I teach in Middlebury, a lot of the, the stores in the downtown area are really struggling. And a part of it is that they can't find workers. Um, Middlebury College is severely understaffed sort of at the, the staffing level, like the dining halls level. Um, you know, if people are trying to buy a house, they can't afford it. Um, and I mean, the the people who are really struggling the hardest are like the working poor. Um, they're facing just extraordinary cost increases um, and there's no exit options. With, um, with such a low vacancy rate, it's not like you can look at your landlord and incredibly threatened to go somewhere else, like where else are you going to go? Um, and our, our tax revenue is going down, right? Because our, our population is aging. Um, you know, it, it's really a problem that, that touches everything. Um, it's not just developers. And the way, the way I like to think about it is developers get a bad rep, but to me, <laughs> they're better understood as just like housing suppliers in the way that like a grocer should be understood as like a food supplier. Like if you put all these rules on grocery stores, they made it very difficult for them to sell you food. And you said, well, that's the, that's the grocer's problem. Well, okay, it's kind of the grocer's problem, but it's also like your problem too when you go to the grocery store and things are a lot more expensive than you'd like them to be. 
I think this, you know, we just heard from a young couple who are working, would like to afford a place, and there are simply no places. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been stories even of subsidized housing, Section 8 housing. Three quarters of the people with housing vouchers can't use them in time because there is no housing to use it on. Mm -hmm. um, and then we hear that UVM Medical Center is struggling to retain doctors and nurses because they come to Burlington and they can't find housing. Mm -hmm. What's the perfect storm? Why is this all combined right now to, you know, the crisis that it is? Well, part of it is that we spent a long time just kind of not building any new housing. Um, you know, if you look at sort of the data on sort of new housing construction in, in Burlington, it really went down starting about 1990 when we passed inclusionary zoning. And it honestly didn't pick up again really until the last couple of years. And even now it's quite slow. Um, and, and you can see this in just the places where housing would obviously make sense that don't have any housing on them, right? So like if you go down to like foam brewers right down along the waterfront, why is there an empty field there? Like, well, it's because we made it impossible to build new housing. Um, and so the, what you got to understand is that we spent a long time not building housing. Uh, there's this old saying about bankruptcy is that you go bankrupt slowly and then suddenly, right? We spent a long time not letting the housing supply increase. And then we got so locked in on having these supply constraints that when there was that little bit of demand increase, particularly with uh, work from home people during COVID, because the supply was so inelastic, that little bit of demand increase sent prices way higher, right? Because normally what would happen is if you've got increased demand for something, the supply can then sort of expand. So um, like where my parents-in-law live in, in West Michigan, they had kind of this somewhat of a similar demand increase uh, around COVID. People could work from home. It's also like a nice place. And so like a couple of miles away from there where they live, developers just built a whole new neighborhood. There's like 700 new houses in this neighborhood. And they even built a new elementary school to go with those houses and also, you know, um, serve the surrounding area. We have a whole bunch of rules at the state and local level here that make it all but impossible for anybody to just build 700 homes in a field. Um, and so instead of supply increasing, prices just go up. And what that does is it actually filters down through everybody, right? Uh, it doesn't just hurt people who can't buy, it, it sort of filters all the way down. And this is a, a crucial point that I, I want people to understand, which is that if you constrain supply, even at the $500,000 level, you're not just hurting those people, you're hurting everyone below them, right? So let's say that, so so the, the place that I'm sitting now, our apartment, uh, we, you know, we rent it. If there were another house that were available at the $400,000 level about what we could afford, we would, we would buy it and move into it. And then this place would be available to somebody who makes a little less than we do. And then their place would be available to somebody who makes a little less than they do. That's how housing filtering works all the way down. So when you block supply, you're not just blocking it at that price level. You're actually blocking it all the way down the ladder. And who it really ends up landing the hardest on is the people at the bottom. Right. And so that's how you get all these like heart wrenching stories, uh, you know, or in people who are like homeless or near homeless or just desperate. It's, it's horrible. Um, and it's because we constrain supply. One of the things uh, in your article that I have described numerous times to people, because um, as they say, a photo or an image is worth a thousand words. So even though you wrote many thousands of words, what really stood out to me was you just did screenshots from Zillow, the real estate listing mm -hmm. outfit, in which you put in what you, uh, a 400,000 three-bedroom home or condo or apartment availability, and you did comparables uh, looking at Burlington, Boise, Idaho, Billings, Montana, and Manchester, New Hampshire. And uh, so Zillow does this very helpful thing where it puts dots all over and shows you all the places you can run around and visit. And the picture of Burlington shows not a single red dot, 
nothing available. That really jumped out at me um, as just a graphical depiction of what you're describing here. I want to go through some of the things that you point, uh, you highlight as drivers of the Vermont version of this crisis. One of them is hippies in Act 250. And I don't want to, you know, single out Act 250. It's one of many things, but it's something somewhat unique to Vermont. Um, recently, there's been some very interesting writing. Mother Jones has a an, an issue all about a very similar situation going on in California. Their version of Act 250 is something called the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, a very strict environmental rule that has been used to essentially stop construction of housing. And of course, many people are familiar with the vast tent cities that have now risen up in places like San Francisco and LA. So talk about hippies and Act 250. How did this lead to where the problem we have now? So there's a particular kind of environmentalism that was very prominent in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and at that moment, I think there was a lot about this environmentalism that made a lot of sense, right? You had the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, like on fire multiple times. Um, we were just getting the EPA. We, we were just getting the Clean Water Act. We didn't have a Clean Air Act. And so there was a lot about environmentalism in that moment that was about adding regulation and about, you know, standing in front of a bulldozer, right? It was really about stopping commercial activities that were creating a lot of environmental harms because they were often being done in ways that were environmentally destructive. And the environmentalism at that moment came with this kind of anti-development streak to it. I don't want to criticize too much that attitude in that moment, but that was 50 years ago. And it, it no longer makes sense. Today, in the, in, in the context we're in of, of climate change and in the Vermont context, the pro-environment thing to do is to build housing near where jobs are so that people can drive less. It's to build those new homes with modern insulation so that they're using far less greenhouse gases when they heat their home in Vermont winters. The environmentalism that we need today is not about blocking everything in sight. The environmentalism that we need today is about building things. It's about, you know, having people live near where they work in modern homes. Like that's a, that's a good thing. It's good socially, it's good economically, it's good for them as humans, but it's, it's also like the, the pro-climate thing to do. And this is one of the things that I wanna point out about 250 over and over again, is it's, it's not just 50 years old, it's 50 years old and no longer like the appropriate way to think about things. Like you don't, just, just because a law is passed doesn't mean it's like forever untouchable. And I, I don't, I think what it's doing is actually causing more harm because what it's doing is it's forcing people who work in South Burlington to commute in from St. Albans or who work in Winooski to commute in from uh, Barrie, right? And that, that's not good for them. That's not good for their time. That's not good for emissions. That's not good for climate. Bill McKibben has an essay in that uh, in the, this current Mother Jones I'm talking about that's looking at how the unintended consequences of some of these 50-year-old environmental regulations, and he calls it yes in my backyard. And YIMBY is actually a big movement in California now to address, you know, the scale of their crisis is, of course, dramatically, uh, you know, exponentially bigger than ours. Um, no, I, I know Bill. He and he and I have talked about this because you know we were both at Middlebury. Um, we actually did an event together on this back in December. That was a, a lot of fun. Hmm. Well, uh, it is being cited by uh, folks in California for as they look to reform some of these older laws. Um, we do have in Vermont um, a current housing bill S one hundred, which is looking to reform Act two hundred and fifty a little. Um, I, I want to get your take on, um, I, I have characterized this uh, as, you know, we have an ocean of need and a spoonful of solutions, but um, I may be being unfair. So you're thinking much more deeply about the housing issue. What is Vermont's, you know, this is one of the bigger Act 250 reforms that has gotten this far in a while, but is it? Is not, it enough? No, it's, it's, it's certainly not enough. That said, I don't want to be unfair 
to the people who have worked really hard on S100, the, you know, the, this um, housing bill to get what they can get. Um, it's, it's not enough. The, the, the way I, I kind of like to think of it is over time. So, so let's imagine a runner who's going to run a 100 meter hurdles race in track and field. Uh, but we've put all these like extra obstacles in the way, right? There's a person doing this obstacle course. Uh, that's a developer trying to build housing in Vermont. It's somebody who's like trying to navigate this incredible variety of obstacles. What we've done with S100, if it passes, we still got to see if it passes, gets on the governor's desk, gets signed, is removed a couple of the obstacles, right? Um, you know, we've allowed for duplexes where there's single family homes, we've reduced parking minimums. We've done a couple of other things that are useful. And I, I support it because I support any step in the right direction. Um, but Act 250 reform has basically been limited to 0.3% of the land area in Vermont. Explain that so people it's, really it's, understand. It's been, it's been limited to these, what are called like designated areas. And these designated areas are, are places that are basically town centers, but only some of them. Um, and not even everywhere at that. They're, they're, they're quite limited. So 90, the, what 250 reforms there are in this bill don't even apply to 99.7% of Vermont. Um, so, you know, one of the big things we need to do to get housing supply is to, I would argue, full repeal 250. We already have federal environmental laws that are quite good. But if we can't repeal it, at least do some, some major reforms where instead of kicking in at 10 units of housing, it kicks in at 50 or 100. That, that would be better. Um, we didn't get any of that. Not really. Um, and so if you're thinking about that obstacle course to building more housing so that we don't have all the scarcity, there's a bunch of obstacles related to Act 250 that we should be removing that we have not. Um, and that's that's really unfortunate. So um, you describe another one of the problems. Well, like really, we should move to other solutions. Um, throwing out Act 250 is probably a far more dramatic and politically uh, impossible move than uh, reforming it is. So I wonder what you think is within reach if there's now this movement with S100. One of the things that I would like to push for, seeing as we couldn't get it this time, that may be a really good thing to do in the next legislative session is if we could at least get an exemption for most of Chittenden County from 250. Because if we're thinking statewide, it's like, okay, people seem to really, really want to preserve a lot of open space throughout Vermont. They associate that with rural identity and Vermont's heritage and this kind of stuff. We need housing somewhere. Like, where does it make sense to have housing? Well, it makes sense to have it in places that are already pretty developed, right? If that's the, the overall strategy. So then it it doesn't make sense to have Act 250 apply to South Burlington, to Winooski, to Burlington, to Shelburne. It just doesn't, if that's where we need housing, if we want housing and we want to preserve a lot of the open space out in most of the state, well, then the housing is going to need to primarily go in Chittenden County. And so I, I think that some compromise that might work is to just simply say that 250 doesn't apply to Chittenden County. That might buy off some of the opposition to 250 reform from people in other parts of the state. Because if it's not affecting where they live, you know, maybe they'll decide that, okay, that that that's appropriate. Yeah, I mean, if you live in, you know, um, New Haven, like what, what does it bother you if there's new housing that you can't even see in Williston? What's a what's another thing that could make a meaningful difference to relieve the crunch that we're in in housing? Uh, well, you could do a lot more, you could do a lot denser building where we already have housing. So there's a lot of places in, in Burlington and Winooski that really should be five over ones, right? The idea is that you have sort of five levels of, um, of, of housing, of apartments over one level of, um, businesses or mixed use. You can see this in a couple of places. Um, like if you go down by like, um, Lake street, um, we need to expand a lot of that out. There's a lot of places in parts of Burlington that simply don't make sense as single family home oriented places um, that really should be 
quadplexes, sixplexes, small apartments. Um, there's some other, you know, smaller scale reforms, like single stair kind of stuff. Instead of having like two two staircases, you have one. Um, so so we could try to make Burlington and Winooski a lot denser. Um, I think that's also a good thing too. You know, um, I think dense, walkable, lively cities are fun. I think people like Church Street for a reason, right? Um, you know, for, uh, it's cool. Um, if we had lots and lots of Burlington look and feel like that downtown area, that, that would be great. Um, I don't think we can solve all of Vermont's housing crisis just by shoving everybody into Burlington Winooski, but that's a, a nice step, a nice additional thing to do. So if your own experience is kind of the... Uh how we, the thermometer we can use to gauge the temperature of the housing crisis. Are you any closer to buying a home? Uh, no, I'm being honest with you. Um, because even though prices have stopped going up, they stopped going up because interest rates went way up. Um, and so no, we're actually not any closer to buying a house here than we were three years ago. Um, it's, it's very frustrating. There was a, a, a place down the road um, that we at least like looked into a little bit because it was right at the top of our price range. It was like, uh, I think it was like 440, which is like a little more than we want to pay, but like maybe you could dream about it. And they put it on Zillow on a Thursday and between Saturday and Sunday, they had 60 visits and 20 plus offers. And the people who bought it bought it for sixty thousand dollars over the asking price in all cash, and it's like that has just happened like a dozen times. Um, so no, I, I don't think we are any closer. If I'm being perfectly honest. Hmm. Well, I hate to end on such a bummer note. All I can say is good luck in your house right. hunting, and thanks uh, for the rest of us for thinking so deeply about causes and solutions of the problem. Thank you for having me on. That was Gary Winslet, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Middlebury College. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.